This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He earned the Master of Arts in the Classics from the University of Cambridge and his PhD in Church History from the University of Aberdeen. Professor Truman has a distinguished and well-known career as both a teacher and an author, having published several books ranging from books on Reformation theology and history to biographies on figures such as John Owen and Martin Luther. He's the author of the book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. It's his newest book, entitled Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity, that is the topic of our conversation today. Carl Truman, welcome to Thinking in Public. You decided you enjoyed writing this book uh, so much, you'd do it twice. <laughs> Apparently so, yes. <laughs> it was actually the publisher's suggestion, but I was very happy to do so. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, yeah. a lot's changed since I wrote it in, in 2011, 2012. But a lot has changed to actually make yeah. the, the book more relevant, I think, rather than less so. Yeah, I agree. I have uh, much appreciated the book and uh, as a confessionalist, a creedalist, uh, much uh, recommended the book. And uh, I think the second edition, as it is entitled, uh, you know, Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity, it does recast. I mean, that, that's a long enough title and subtitle. It's kind of a narrative in itself. and. Uh, you know, I, I do want to catch us here because you just talked about all these developments. You are trying to cover two millennia of Christian history here. And uh, you, now you've got two editions in about a decade. So you know, there, <laughs> yes. there, there's a lot going on. And, yeah. and maybe yeah. you should explain what has changed yeah. in this period of time. Well, I think the, the things that haven't changed, I still believe that the best way for churches to preserve the faith and to, to make sure it's communicated in a stable way, both to the people in the pew today and for future generations, is to have creeds and confessions or the equivalent thereof in our churches, functioning yeah. as a way of uh, capturing the essence, the deposit of the faith. I think what has changed in the last couple of, or really in the last decade, the whole question of identity has become much more pressing. And that's raised a whole host of issues that I didn't anticipate at the time I wrote the, the first book, uh, but which I think confessionalism also addresses in addition to the stuff that I that I did cover. I would use an example, uh, uh, for example, gay marriage that popped up. Really, yeah. it, it was brewing, but it became a big thing sort of 2013 to 2015 in the United States. And I remember a lot of friends saying, do we need to add, say, a chapter to the Westminster Confession or, or the Second London Baptist Confession on to address the issue of gay marriage? And my answer was always, I don't, I don't think so. I think what we need to do is, first of all, use our confessions and apply them to the, the issues that arise today. But I also became aware in answering that question that way that one of the things that confessions did that, that I think has become very, very important is precisely because they give a summary of the faith, they also show how different elements of the faith interlock and interconnect with each other. And they show the broad framework of Christian doctrine that then allows us to address, for example, questions of, of sexuality or identity by realizing that, well, actually, we're not looking for a Bible verse on this. We have to think in terms of holistic structure of Christian doctrine. 
And creeds and confessions really do help us, I think, see that that sort of architectonic structure that is very, very helpful in in facing yeah. the, the crazy stuff that we're addressing at the moment. Yeah, I uh, I'm going to argue with you uh, okay. on uh, one of those <laughs> points, uh, but we'll we'll save that for a few minutes. And uh, uh, I think it might be helpful for us as as two confessionalists, two creedalists, uh, one a Presbyterian, one a Baptist. To kind of talk about what we mean by confessionalism or creedalism. And uh, I, I think there's such an important story here, and I don't just mean our stories. I mean the, the, the Christian story, the Presbyterian story, the Baptist story. Uh, I think we can make tangible um, why it's, in some sense, confessionalism or nothing when it comes to long-term Christian faithfulness. Yeah, that's a very good question, a very, very good point. Uh, one of the things that I say right at the start of the book is that there's no such thing really as a creedless or a confessionless Christian. Uh, there are those who would say they have no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ or no confession but the Bible or no confession but Christ. But in practice, everybody believes the Bible means something. There's a whole variety of denominations and churches out there that think the Bible means a lot of different things. We all operate with a, with a functional understanding of, of what the Bible as a whole means. And what creeds and confessions are designed to do is to try to, to synthesize or capture in a, a fairly unified and concise form the overall unifying themes of the Bible, the overall teachings of the Bible, the overall doctrines of the Bible. So there's a sense in which all Christians... All Christians do that. The man who, who has no creed but the Bible does that. He doesn't just read the Bible. He proclaims the Bible. He tells his people what the Bible means. And what the church has discovered over time is that it's very helpful to actually have those themes written down. You know, a, a creed in the, in the early church, say the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London, Second London Baptist Confession. Uh, we don't claim that these stand on the same level as the Bible in terms of authority. Right. What we do claim is that they represent how what we think the Bible is teaching. That allows other people yeah. from outside to know. It allows people for, to look at us, for example, to know, well, well Truman's a, a Presbyterian, is a Baptist. This is where they agree. Look at their confessions where they overlap. This is where they disagree. It allows us to understand our place uh, within the, the Christian world. Of course, the real yeah. era for... A production of, of Christian confessions, the more elaborate creedal documents, is the 16th and 17th century, where the church, the visible church as such, starts to fragment, and it becomes critically important in those days for Protestants to, to establish exactly what they stand for and how they connect to the other Christian options that are out there. Yeah. Well, you know, we are a Presbyterian and a Baptist, uh, both of us, you know, self-conscious confessionalists speaking to one another. And I want to state a certain kind of indebtedness because when it comes to my tradition and my own institution, we just stole your confession and fixed it. Uh, so, <laughs> Spoken like a true Baptist. Yes. There's a, some wonderful things for us to discuss here. But, I've, never heard, uh, you, you, I've never heard plagiarism referred to in that way before, but there you go. Well, it, it, it didn't work just to steal it. We had to steal it and fix it. But, That's true. You know, That's it, true. With a, with, a, with a tremendous amount of respect and... Uh, you know, I, I want to tell you, uh, Carl, I, I think, um, I, I, first of all, I read you in this book, and I mean that as a, as a good thing, 
because I, I know what you've been doing for decades in terms of uh, your life and teaching and, and, and writing and research. Uh, I'm in this book, too, uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, so I was raised in a, uh, a confessional home, in, in, in a wonderful uh, Baptist confessional church. I was uh, trained in a catechism that was consistent with the, with, with the confession. But very quickly, I was told that uh, to be a Baptist meant you're not a confessionalist, you're not a creedalist. No creed but the Bible, which actually is Alexander Campbell, not a Baptist. But nonetheless, you know, it, it's it's a bad idea made yeah. worse by stealing that idea. Yeah. And um, and and I, I think one of the things that you don't deal with much in your book, because this is not your audience, but I just want to put out there is when I say it's confessionalism or nothing, uh, I really mean that. Because I actually think you're overly generous in one point when you say, even the non-credalists have a creed. I just want to tell you, I've met people who don't. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I've met people who are complete nihilists in interpretation. I, I had to confront uh, arguments in, in my own experience that were basically, uh, you know, I, I wasn't so much talking with someone who's a fellow Baptist as talking with someone who's a closet Unitarian. Um, and, and so I, I think one of the things that's in the background of my coming to this issue is the disaster of Protestant liberalism. Right. And the fact that, you know, in your tradition, you know, the, the Briggs trial, yes, uh, yes. the trial of Charles Augustus Briggs, which was a complete failure. Uh, the, you know, the creed, a, a liberal professor, undoubtedly liberal at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and uh, the Presbyterians bring him up on charges and uh, they can't make it stick. Yeah, and yeah. thus the door was wide open for yeah. every form of theological liberalism to come in. And I just I want evangelicals to understand how high the stakes are here. I mean, the, the, it's not like there's some example we can point to where a denial of confessionalism worked. It just it's a it's a disaster. Yeah, I think that's very true. And uh, of course, my audience, the audience I was pitching to in the book, is really the evangelical audience, and I think will be right. sympathetic to all that the creeds and confessions understood as they should be, are trying to state supernaturalism, right. inspiration of scripture, those kind of things. But you're also touching there on the fact that you know, creeds and confessions are not enough in and of themselves to sure. uh, ensure the, the the purity, the Catholicity, the continuity of the church. There has to be a form of church government as well, and there have to be good men of integrity who are willing to act and hold office bearers, particularly office bearers, right. accountable to a proper and appropriate reading of the confession. So on that level, I, I don't think there's any major disagreement between us there. Certainly you can no, find I those know there who, isn't. Yeah, you can find those who really say, well, we, we all hold to a form of words. It's just we interpret them in different ways. That that's a kind of nihilism in some ways. All right. So let's go into this for a few moments. So one of the big issues is whether or not a uh, a confession or a creed is merely symbolic, and of course there's a Catholic history to that use of that term, or if it's regulative. And I think one of the most important things in our traditions, uh, and I'll, I'll claim it as one tradition with kind of two storefronts, um, is, is that uh, our understanding of the Orthodox tradition in Presbyterianism and in Baptist means that the creed or confession is not symbolic merely, it is regulative. It regulates our churches, it regulates our institutions. Yes, and there's an interesting distinction made in, in post-Reformation Protestantism between what we call a, the normed norm and the norming norm. Right. And the norming That's norm right. is Scripture. That means that every claim made by 
any confession anywhere is subject to scrutiny of scripture. So although I, you know, I, I take a, a, a vow of subscription as a Presbyterian minister to the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm still committed to the hypothetical revision of that confession if it can be demonstrated that it doesn't actually give an account of what the norming norm scripture says. Then we have this other phrase, though, the normed norm, and that is the, the confession whether it's the right. Second London Confession, whether it's the Westminster Confession, or whether it's a statement of faith that a church, it's, you know, an independent church has, has decided to put together as its governing doctrinal document. And that means that in, you know, functionally, when it comes to things like church discipline and pastoral care, we look to the confession. We use the confession as a useful summary of what the Bible teaches. Uh, and unless the confession could be proved to be wrong, then it is, as you say, regulative. So to take a, a rather negative example, in my experience in Presbyterianism, when we've had discipline cases, discipline cases usually involve bringing a charge against somebody for a breach of the confession. Right. And in the charge is laid out in the document that you produce to charge somebody, you'll be pointing to the chapter and paragraph of the confession, which their life or belief is in contradiction to. But then below that, you'll provide scripture references so if you like, the, the, right. the confession is regulative and it provides a nice hook onto which to uh, uh, hang the charge. But then you're also expected to provide the biblical background that shows right. that this regulative statement is actually grounded in Scripture. It does not stand separate to Scripture or even worse, in opposition to Scripture. Right. And, uh, and uh, brilliantly said. But as you look at that, you know, that, that's obviously what they are. Uh, you know, in other words, it takes a, a rather deliberate misconstrual uh, to get to the liberal position that the creed is somehow being held up above the scripture. Uh, yeah, I, I know of no gospel church in which anything close to that is true. You know, Luther responded to that. If we're going to throw around Latin, let's, let's let Luther have more Latin than anyone else. Norma normans non normata. You know, scripture's the norm of norms that can't be normed. Yeah. But there are other norms, as as Luther made very clear, that are that are seeking to um, make clear how God's people will be faithful to the norming norm of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, and I think that's uh, that's a very important point, and that's one of the most important points I think to make when you're talking to to good evangelical brothers and sisters who are, you know, rightfully suspicious about creedalism and confessionalism because they're worried that it infringes on Scripture's authority or Scripture's sufficiency. So it's important to introduce these kind of distinctions and discussions in order to help them realize that actually we're not claiming the kind of things that you are rightfully worried about. We, we don't want a kind of Roman Catholic tradition right. that stands separate from Scripture. On the other hand, we do want to acknowledge that you know, Paul talks about a form of sound words, that there's, there's biblical precedent exactly right. for, for thinking about uh, phrases, forms of sound words that are useful ways of, of indicating orthodoxy. Yeah, you know, Carl, when I was elected president of this institution, I had to, I had to lead a complete reformation. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that was only possible Honestly, because the founders of this institution were such ardent creedalists and confessionalists. Right. And, and uh, you know, they, they, they borrowed it honestly. Yeah. Half of the founding faculty of four were graduates of Princeton. And uh, so the language of our teaching contract from 1859 to the present is uh, actually 
uh, just uh, pasted out of the original teaching uh, agreement. It was not written at Princeton in terms of the individuals with the names. It was the board's statement, and the board had the sole power of election and and, uh, the uh, discipline of faculty. So, for instance, every single person who teaches at this school has to sign that they will teach in accordance with and not contrary to all that is contained therein, meaning the confession of faith, without hesitation or mental reservation. And, uh, you know, that logic came directly from someone you do cite in the book, I'm glad to say, um, Samuel Miller at Princeton on the use and utility of creeds and confessions. You know, in other words, that language has been hammered out in the post-Reformation era uh, precisely to avoid someone saying, you know, that we're holding the, the, the creed or the confession above Scripture, or someone else saying, I have the right of private interpretation. Yeah, we have the equivalent in Presbyterianism. We take what we call ex animo vows, which you know roughly that's translates right. as from the bottom of the heart and in all right. sincerity. And I think yeah. that's very, very uh, important to. We borrowed that language too. <laughs> okay, yes. it's good language. It's good language. Yes. So yeah, and and of course, what you're pointing to there is you know many of the problems that have have occurred in confessional churches have not in- occurred because they're confessional. They've occurred because people have crossed their fingers when they've subscribed. People, that's exactly right. And that's, that's exactly the right. real problem. It's not the confessions that bring churches down. It's the the failure of sometimes good but weak men who fail to hold people accountable to, to that to which they've subscribed. So I've got to tell you, Carl, so, you know, sometimes God just gives you like delicious, unexpected uh, gifts. And one of them was when I was assigned. Uh, to a a Southern Baptist Roman Catholic dialogue meeting. And you can imagine what those meetings are kind of like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. and, and, and so now that conservatives are controlled the SBC, we don't have them. That doesn't mean we don't have conversations with Roman Catholics. We have many of those. But we don't have these dialogues, which yeah. were just ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, it was actually in one of those that I uh, I, I endured and uh, and by this, I mean, conservative Catholics didn't like it, and conservative Baptists didn't like it. We want to have conversations that are honest conversations, but, you know, dialogue is just, it's, a, it's ecumenical mush. That's why yeah. it's yeah. gone. But I had a gift in one of those. When I was dealing with all these things and was talking with a very prominent uh, Catholic historian, I won't mention, and he looked at me and he said, because I was talking about confessionalism, the Protestant uh, formulas and all the rest, he said, you need to look somewhere you're not looking. And I said, well, where? And he said, Spain. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm going to give you a reference. He gave me a reference, uh, and it was some of the original documents of the Spanish Inquisition. Okay. Uh, the thing is, I did not know until he pointed me there where two of those phrases came from. But, you know, it really helps. And, and so the without hesitation or mental reservation Oh, That's yeah. language from the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yes, the Jesuits yeah. as well. Yes, very absolutely. Much, yes. Well, it was against the Jesuits. Yeah. It, it was, in other words, uh, although yeah. you have to, you have to, you have to watch the uh, the historical, you know, uh, uh, dots here. But it was against what would become Jesuitical yeah. logic. Yeah, casuistry. Um, very interesting. Yeah, the casuistry. And so the, I, <laughs> but I had, you know, so this idea of hesitation. So someone who's being charged with heresy could be told they have to assert the creed. And then some of them would do so by saying, I do so with hesitation, which means here you say, 
I believe in the virgin birth. Here you say, I do not believe in the virgin birth. Or Jesus was born of a virgin. I do not assert that Jesus was born of a virgin. And then you say that like an atomic particle, you're hesitating between the two opinions. You really can't answer the question because you're in a, you're in a position of atomic hesitation. And you think, that's, that's nuts. But I face down human beings who basically made that argument to me. And, and then the, the mental reservation is just precious because that could cover everything, including the entire doctrine. Yeah. And uh, so even some of the documents of the Spanish Inquisition, and I'm not holding up the Spanish Inquisition, so, so <laughs> some anti-credalists are saying, yes. well, that's exactly our fear. But, but yeah. I'm just saying that the, the language, it, you know, we, we're all trying to get to language that matters. Yeah. And if you, if you can assert, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but I have mental reservations about whether it actually happened. I mean, sadly, in the 19th and 20th centuries, you had Protestant denominations that said that that was an acceptable yeah. position. Yeah. Yeah, and in uh, the Scottish Presbyterian tradition has a lot of debates about what they call declaratory acts, which essentially one of the most infamous of them said, you know, you have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith to the extent that it touches on the substance of the faith. Well, of course, that that you know, if you don't think the confession is the substance of the faith, there's a real problem there. And effectively, right. what the Declaratory Act did was, was allow for these men mental reservations in many ways. Well, if, if right. you don't think that the virgin birth is part of the substance of the faith, then you can subscribe to the Westminster Confession, but you're not bound to that section. Uh, and of course, the history of Presbyterianism relative to these kind of acts is a disastrous one. The, the church uh, ultimately collapses into a kind of secularism expressed in a religious idiom. That's the yeah. you know, that's the ultimate outcome yeah. of these things. And a lot of these modernist heresies actually emerge not in a secular context, but in a Christian context. Uh, you know, Carl, uh, we share the common hero of Martin Luther. And, you know, it's really interesting that in the Diet of Worms, uh, Luther's confronted by, you know, the accusation, and he's called to, to answer. And, and the, you know, in, in an English translation, I guess the, the most the most literal translation would be answer without horns and without teeth. And uh, yeah. so what's really interesting is that the, 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 the Roman Catholic uh, prosecutor against Luther tells him, you can't be a Jesuit here. You've got to actually answer yeah. without yeah. hesitation or mental reservation. Yeah. I think, you know, that, yeah. that just shows you how convoluted all of this was. And Luther wasn't about to answer with hesitation or mental reservation. Yeah. He gives yeah. it back to them in full. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, to, to reduce this to really simple moral categories, it just comes down to honesty or dishonesty. You know, that's what we're really looking right. at here. Do you subscribe honestly or dishonestly? Uh, you know, and the beauty of living in a place like America, of course, is a free country. Nobody has to subscribe these confessions. You're not going to be locked up in prison if you don't subscribe the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, so there's a real moral issue involved, I think, with what I would describe as sort of phony or false uh, subscription that we're really touching on here. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of leaving your first chapter to the end of our conversation, um, but I want to jump into your second chapter and beyond, because you you do, I think, something that uh, that few evangelicals do very well, and and that is you go back to the patristic era, to the early church. And uh, you, I think you do a very good job of simply and straightforwardly, but quite faithfully, 
kind of walking through some of the theological crises and uh, the the uh, creedal formula that uh, that emerged from that. And uh, I think this is something that's in our lifetimes, Carl, is very, very happy. Uh, you know, the students at my school, and uh, no doubt at yours, uh, they want to know what the fathers of the church believe. They they want to hold to the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. They don't see them as the authority or the norming norm, uh, but they do see them as uh, as you know progenitors of the faith in such a way that they they were struggling with these issues. So kind of just walk us through how you came to appreciate uh, these uh, creedal debates, conciliar events in the early church. Yeah, it's it's in some ways it's a it's an example of where my own personal Christian walk and my academic interests ended up sort of feeding off each other in some right. ways. You know, I was converted uh, my first year at college. I'd been to hear Billy Graham while at school. Got interested in Christianity. Really came to to faith. I would say my first year at university. I was very much involved in a kind of what I would describe as a a broad conservative evangelical kind of milieu. I don't mean that as a criticism at all. The, the, my friends were great Christian friends. They nurtured and uh, mentored and pastored me really well. So I don't mean this in, in any bad way about them at all. But one thing that was lacking in that was didn't really get any historical grounding. And there was always this niggling thought at the back of my head, you know, is the, does the, did the faith just drop from the sky? Uh, how does what my pastor tells me on a Sunday or preaches on a Sunday, how does that connect to the church of the last 2000 years? And it was while I was doing my my graduate work uh, on Martin, the reception of Martin Luther, and then my uh, post, uh, post sort of doc work on John Owen that I came to realize that the reformers and the, the theologians who succeeded the reformers in the 17th century, uh, they were... They, they thought very highly of the ancient church. They were constantly interacting with early church sources, medieval sources. They didn't even think about the history of the church in the way that we now routinely do in terms of a, a discrete patristic era, then a medieval era, then a reformation era. They, they saw continuities all over the place. And I, I began to read the the ancient fathers and the medieval theologians, some of them for myself, and realized, wow, so much of what they're saying, particularly in the prayers, actually, when you read the prayers of these guys, so much of what they're saying is entirely consistent with the Christian faith that's, that I know and love. And, then, and, of course, the obvious reason is because the great fathers of Protestantism stood on the shoulders of the medievals and, and the and early they knew church they as well. Yeah, they did it right, self-consciously. Right. Yeah. In, in fact, you know, one of the most obvious things when if you ever study the Reformation is, you know, nobody wants to be original in the Reformation. Sure. Uh, you know, Richard Muller makes this, so I suppose people might describe it as an off-color joke. I don't know, but he, I've heard Richard Muller joke on a number of occasions, you know, there's only one original theologian in Geneva in the 16th century. And they burned him because Servetus. of his originality. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, none of the reformers want to be be original. They all want to faithfully carry the faith of the fathers through their generation and onto the Which next. We both believe they did. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, yeah. now clearly that's not to say that the reformers aren't saying things that weren't said in the early church. I think right. we allow for deeper insights into scripture, deeper insights into the implications of Christian doctrine. Uh, but it is to say that there's a that they thought of themselves 
as of the on the same team yeah. essentially. Well, but, the, but uh, the fathers of the third century were saying things the fathers of the second century weren't saying. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's a question of and, continuity and discontinuity, which is central to church history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there, there's a question of, you know, there's a sense in which, one, we need to be charitable always with the past to some extent. Um, but we also need to realize that you know, when when one doctrinal problem is solved in a particular way, it sets up the vocabulary, grammar, and syntax for solving the next doctrinal problem. So it's hard, say, to jump into fifth century Christology and understand it without understanding what's gone on in the fourth century exactly. with regard to the yeah. Trinity. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And uh, this is going to get us in just a minute into some really deep water, which I'm looking forward to going into with you. But, uh, you know, even in this theme of continuity and discontinuity, you know, um, one of the key questions for a Protestant and evangelical is whether the Reformers got the argument right. And, uh, you know, the, the Reformers made their first argument on Scripture, sola scriptura. Yeah, um, yeah. But, they, but even in their, uh, not just in their polemical writings, but in their systematic writings. I mean, after the Scripture, the person most often cited by John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion is Augustine. Yeah, And then yeah. people can often go with me there, but I tell them, you know, you know, you'll never guess who number two is after Augustine. It's Bernard of Clairvaux, you know? Uh, so, I mean, you have Calvin of all things, uh, yeah. who, or of all people, I should say, who uh, you know is making very clear it's it's the Catholic Church in this sense uh, that uh, you yeah. know th that has run off from the the teachings of Augustine and the other fathers. Yeah, and I mean, you get that very clearly if if any listeners have not read Calvin's reply to Cardinal Sadolato. Sadolato yeah. is the man who writes to yeah. Geneva and tells him to come back to the Catholic Church. And yeah. Calvin, who's in exile from Geneva at the time, writes a response to him. And Calvin, in that little work, makes the argument that it's interesting from an evangelical perspective because it's a little bit jarring. He sort of makes the argument that, that we Protestants are the inheritors of the true tradition. Absolutely. And Protestants, yeah. we often don't like to talk about tradition, but Calvin's happy to do so. He says the problem with the Catholic Church is, is not that it's carrying on with tradition. It's that it's deviated from right. the tradition. In these areas, and, and Calvin, for anyone who wants a, a brief snapshot of yeah. a Protestant methodology relative to historical sources, Calvin's reply to Sadolato is a very, very concise and very accessible yeah. uh, text on that front. One of the most important uh, document from the Reformation, uh, I believe. And, you know, I, yeah. I enjoy reading it because it's also where you see more of Calvin's personality uh, yeah. than in some of his other writings, which is also fun. Um, so let's go back to the early church for a moment. And I said we we're going to get in some deep water. Let's go ahead and do that. Um, you know, it, it, as you look at the 19th and 20th centuries and the development of liberal theology and uh, the takeover, frankly, of so many uh, historically faithful denominations by theological liberalism, one of the arguments they made is that uh, there was no doctrinal stability in apostolic Christianity. And in fact, some of them went so far as to say there's no doctrinal stability in the New Testament. There's no doctrinal stability in the apostolic preaching. There's no doctrinal stability in the early church. And along came a, 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 a German scholar named Walter Bauer, who, who wrote a book basically saying that the categories of heresy and orthodoxy don't even fit the early church. Or if they do, it was more marked by heresy than by orthodoxy. 
And, uh, you know, Carl, as, as, a, as a doctoral student in systematic and historical theology, that was one of the biggest issues for me to wrestle with. And uh, yeah. so I'd like to talk about it just a little bit, because, I mean, honestly, a lot of people, you know, they're downstream from that debate. They don't know yeah. that that argument is what is behind uh, so many people telling them to be dismissive of the uh, yeah. creedal history of the church. Yeah, and you get versions of that, of course, popularized by people like Elaine Pagels and uh, Bart Ehrman. So it's it's still sort of the air right. that that is breathed. You know, and you buy books like that at Barnes and Noble. This is not That's the right. preserve of scholars. Right. It's something that you know any pastor is going to come across. Somebody in his congregation who says, "Hey, I picked up this great book by Bart Ehrman, and what do you make of it?" Uh, I, I think th there's a sense in which. You know, you can always find what you look for. And I think if you go in looking for a mess and you go in looking for chaos, you can certainly piece together enough there to persuade you that you went in looking right. for the right thing. I think if you go in more with a with a, with a fairer mind saying, what's going on here? Uh, you know, we can look at the, you know, for example, the question of one of the big questions, the question of the canon. Right. What, what is the, you know, is the canon a fourth century invention or, or when does the canon come about? If you look at the, the writings that we have from the early church from the second century, uh, I, I think you find their references to an awful lot of the books that now form the New Testament canon. Right. And, and they're referenced in a way that is authoritative. It's not as if somebody quotes Paul to the Romans right. and then has to justify Paul as an authority. Right. It seems Paul carries that off. Just quoting Paul is enough to, bam, settle that issue. So I think there's plenty of, of evidence to suggest that Bauer's thesis is greatly overstated on, on that kind of, kind of front. And of course, you know, Paul himself is wrestling with, with heresy in the early church. When you look at the, the letters of Paul, the categories, he may not use the language of, you know, the word orthodoxy there, uh, but you, you find the, the concept that there is a stable content of the faith and that this per person, Alexander the Smith, Silversmith or the Nicolaitans or whatever, these people stand outside that. So I think Bauer's thesis is, Bauer's thesis assumes that there cannot be a stable content. That's so, uh, that was such theological ammunition for theological liberalism. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you assume that's yeah. the case, then you can certainly find that that's the case. Yeah. But I would say if you don't assume that the case, the evidence tilts strongly uh, in the other direction. One of my doctoral professors handed me uh, the assignment to uh, read Bauer and uh, respond to it. And uh, I didn't have any background in the argument. So reading Bauer was, I have to tell you, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a kind of a shaking experience mm. uh, for a young scholar. I was, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And, I, and I'm trying to wrestle with this. And uh, so anyway, I came out of it with Mueller's thesis as a response to, to Bauer's thesis. And I've really stuck with it for 40 plus years. And so I'm going to share it with you because this is what you've been waiting for. Um, no, the Moeller thesis is this, in response to the Bauer thesis, that orthodoxy is merely an imposition of order upon the natural disorder of the church, which was, you know, heresy. In other words, it was, it was, it was theological confusion. Uh, you know, the, the presence of so many different things being said about the person and work of Christ, for example, the, what we would call Trinitarian issues. There was no stable orthodoxy. The achievement of this orthodoxy was simply a political act 
um, an arbitrary political act, which was probably explainable by uh, by even earthly political you know rationale. Uh, just to take Constantine at 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 Nicaea in 325. So Mueller's thesis, however, is this: because I think evangelicals are in danger, Protestants in general are in danger of missing the fact that Bauer was onto something. And I'm just going to give him like a 5% credit here. He's onto something, which is if you create a timeline, heresy often does become the occasion for the articulation yeah. of orthodoxy. Yeah. So the way I put it, because I mean, here I'm writing a seminar paper, I got to do it. I, 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 you know, just starting out as a doctoral student, but I responded by saying, it seems to me that what is true is that so many of the great creeds and confessions of the church were made necessary by the articulation of heresy that the faithful church had to answer. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea. And it reminds me of a, a, a quote, a, a statement by John Henry Newman. Uh, he made it before he became a Catholic, so I can sort of yeah. <laughs> mention it here. But in his sermon on doctrinal development, right. not the big book, but in his sermon right. on doctrinal development, he makes the comment that every heresy is one aspect of the truth push to the exclusion of That's all right. others. Right. When you think about that, that ties in nicely with, with the Mola thesis there. And the idea of, you know, think about in the early church, you have docetism, That's right. the denial of the of the physical reality, the human flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that captures something. It captures the fact sort of that he's God. Right. But it demands that the church address what is different. What is wrong with this? What is the overemphasis here? So I like that idea. I think, yes, there is a... Uh, there is a kind of almost a dialectical relationship, you might say, right. between between heresy and orthodoxy or truth that drives the thing forward. Yes. Yeah. You know, for instance, uh, and this gets to another issue I want us to discuss, uh, but it, it it explains why the confessions get longer. Yeah. And, and and there are more propositional phrases that are required, say, in the 16th century than were required in the 6th century. Um, yeah. And you have entire new, new, um, you know, chapters or sections uh, or statements in the creed, uh, such as justification. I mean, in the 16th century, yeah. you know, now, now all of a sudden you have justification and some of the historic Protestant creeds pulled out as an article. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and it reminds me of the debate between John Owen and Richard Baxter. Uh, in the latter part of the 17th century, when they're debating how how do we get nonconformists in England together now that right. we've been sort of booted from the corridors of power, can we can we find a document that will allow us to have a a consensus among nonconformists and provide some sort of unity? And and Baxter wants it to be the the Apostles' Creed. He thinks right. the Apostles' Creed because it's it's suitably we might say vague, that would be a negative way of putting it, or you know, suitably undetailed would be another way of putting it, in order to, to allow everybody in. And, and John Owen opposes this on the grounds that, no, there's there's actually a reason why we have the Nicene Creed. Right. And one of the reasons we have the Nicene Creed is that that detailed That's language right. in the Nicene Creed is necessary right. in order to keep out the Unitarians uh, and the Sassinians who might be able to sign a vaguer formulation relative to, to God and the Godhead. Uh, so I think your, your point is, 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 is absolutely on target there, Al, that you know, documents get longer for a reason, and that's yeah. because 
soon as you have a document, somebody starts to try to twist it or pick a hole in it or something else pops up that needs to be addressed. And that's why I I like more thorough rather than less thorough documents on that front. Well, well said by an English speaking Presbyterian. So that's uh, that's good. (laughs) Again, and and we're grafted onto your tree. So we're we're pleased with that. you know uh, about this this issue as you as you think about you know what what can be you know assumed what must be articulated that that just gets longer and longer you know over church history, but uh, it also gets to the fact that the church is quite regularly faced with the fact that it has to answer a question not just on the basis of advisable and inadvisable but on yeah. the basis of true or false. Uh, yeah, part yeah. of the rule of faith or not part of the rule of faith, uh, yeah. you know, consistent with the uh, with the, the scripture, inconsistent with the scripture. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of younger evangelicals think that all of that is in the past. I don't think it is. No, I think, uh, for example, all of the issues relative to to sexuality and identity, they're certainly being posed in in new and pointed ways that the church has not seen before. And that raises the interesting question of, do we need to expand our creeds and confessions to to allow for that? My my gut instinct on all of these questions is we we mustn't do that until we've really decided that the documents we have are inadequate to the task. So I used the example of gay marriage earlier. It seems to me that the positive teaching we find in traditional Protestant confessions about marriage, be they Lutheran, Baptist or Presbyterian, is quite adequate for dealing with gay marriage because it sets forth what the truth is and therefore by implication excludes all of the the false claimants to marriage. Uh, But I wouldn't want to rule out the possibility of something emerging that might require at some point an addition uh, to uh, a confession. Yeah, uh, I'd rather not go there because the history of confessional revision is not generally an encouraging one. Confessions tend to move away from orthodoxy rather than deeper into it when they're revised. No necessary reason why that should happen. It's just the sinfulness of the human heart, uh, I think, in play there. Uh, but I'm not. Uh, I think if you're a confessionalist, you have to be committed to the idea hypothetically that the church, and I do stress the church and not any individual, the church uh, may wish to to modify or add to its confessional statement. So this is the only point at which I think you're just wrong and like dangerously wrong. And uh, I say that with a (laughs) smile. So we're friends talking here. But uh, I think it's also because you're a Presbyterian and I'm a Baptist, partly. And and, And you're probably thinking, well, you're absolutely right about that. But anyway, what what I uh, and and you and I've had some discussions of this over the years, uh, and and maybe it, part of it is the difference as uh, you know, as you might articulate in terms of why you wrote the second edition with identity politics. Maybe it's because because of standpoint epistemology, or maybe it's because of the difference in social location. I'm president of an institution, uh, of of a theological seminary and a college. I am a leader in a an evangelical denomination. And I'm very, very active in the legal defense of Christian institutions, Christian schools, Christian ministries. Yeah. And uh, so the yeah, and and uh, you know the listeners know how friendly this is, but I I do want to say that we are going to be in a increasingly vulnerable situation if, when it comes to something like gender uh, claims made by the LGBTQ movement and all the rest, we can't say this is a matter of explicit creedal authority. Right. I have yeah. a way of resolving that. And so 
I think you're right. And you know, I've had lots of yeah. discussions, which we can just say, you know, we, in a friendly way, we discussed this before. But I've been a part of developing such statements as the Nashville Statement and, and uh, you know, I wasn't there to 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 uh, form the Danvers statement, but you know, in, in affirming it, yeah, I can tell you that legally and procedurally, I could not have led to the reform of this institution without those documents having creedal status. Right. But yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I I just want to say this. And I want to turn it back to you. I believe the right way to deal with that is not to revise the historic confession, but rather for a governing board or for the elders or the congregation, depending on the polity, to adopt this statement as a necessary, creedally binding interpretation of what was meant uh, by the historic yeah. confession. Yeah, and Presbyterians, we have a sort of equivalent of that. I think I'm right in saying that the PCA adopted the Nashville Statement, yes. uh, not, as, not as a kind of, not on the same level as the right. Westminster Confession, right. because there's a sense in which the issues the Nashville Statement addresses, I don't think they will, but may disappear one day and become sort of, you know, like a statement on lobotomies might have been a hundred years ago. So we'd be scratching yeah, our heads yeah, now, wondering right. why. But adopted it as a, as a, as you say, as a kind of yeah. This is what we see the right, clear implications right. of our confessional position being. And and in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, my denomination, mm -hmm. we like the PCA. We also produce these General Assembly reports right. that are not considered to be confessional, but are ways of. You know, we, you could produce a, a report on sexuality, which essentially says these are what we think the implications of the confession are, and this is how we think our ministers should should operate. So we're getting towards the kind of thing I think that you're you're pointing to there. I certainly don't want to say that you know a confession written in the 17th century can do everything for the church today. Right. I think it provides a good document for defining the church doctrinally, but it can't carry the weight of everything that the church needs to do right. doctrinally within the context in which we find ourselves. Which is one of the reasons why I, th I think, so in other words, I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't a friendly conversation, but I hope it's really helpful to listeners. And, uh, you know, I'm in constant conversation with headmasters of Christian schools, with pastors mm, of Christian yeah. churches, uh, president CEOs yeah. of Christian organizations, and with the lawyers that are helping us in this. Yeah, And, yeah. Um, you know, they're generally... Uh, applicable principles of law that, uh, yeah. you know, for instance, how do you assert that your church properly on the basis of an exercise of religious conviction asserts this to be true? How, how, how yeah. do you prove that to be true? Well, in court, it certainly helps if you're having to defend yourself, for instance, against, uh, you know, uh, charges that you're you're violating civil rights by saying that a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl in your school. That's, that's not hypothetical anymore. Yeah, it certainly yeah. helps if you go into court to say, you know, here is where there is a Christian statement consistent with, you know, the creedal and confessional history of our church. And one of the ways you can do that is, I think, by saying this statement helps us to understand and is a necessary implication of this historic creed. I think you've made the point very well, and I thank you for making this point. That the best way is not to go back and say, take the formula of Concord and revise it, but rather to say, if you're Lutheran, that uh, that this is a necessary implication of what is asserted there. Yeah, yes, and I, and I think just sort of bouncing off that again for anyone listening, if you know, if you're a member of a church or a pastor of a church with a you know a twelve point 
doctrinal statement right. as your standard. I mean, that's it's. Don't get me wrong. It's great to have a doctrinal standard. I don't mean to 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 sort of dismiss that, but you probably need at this point to to consult lawyers because almost yes. certainly your twelve point doctrinal statement will not give you the kind of foundation exactly. that you've been pointing to there as as very important. Right. And you know, I'd, I'd urge pastors, elders, elder boards. Get some legal advice That's right. relative to your confessional document, however big or however small it is, to make sure that you're anticipating potential problems that that could be coming down the line. Right, I think they, a lot of churches yeah. did that with gay marriage, but the gender thing, that's the new thing on the horizon. Well, and this is where things are more difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in deep water on this in terms of my personal involvement with uh, churches, institutions, denominations, and the courts. Uh, and that is that you know, there is a statement concerning marriage in a lot of the historic Christian creeds and confessions. And just to take, for example, you know, if you're in the Anglican tradition, you have everything you need in the Book of oh, Common yeah. Prayer, the church, you know, you have everything you need, um, except courage to apply it in the present, by the way, but that's another story. But, Ouch! Yes. <laughs> but at least in the documents, you have everything you need. Yeah. But on the question of gender, because of the way it's being asserted, yeah. and, you know, you I think this is to lead into the, you know, the final part of our conversation. I think that's a part of the reason why you wrote this book is because of the uh, the, the ideological contaminants uh, that and expressive individualism and all the rest. But uh, you know, our creeds, even when it asserts male and female, were not written to defend against someone saying, no. "Well, I declare myself to be female." Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that's where you really need to, you know, the areas of the creeds and confessions that need to be scrutinized in this particular context are those dealing with creation and anthropology. And at the moment, when I look at the Westminster Confession, I feel I, I think we have enough there, pastorally at least, to 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 govern our right. churches and to and to pastor our people. But you know, not to put too fine a point on it, it is impossible to predict the next level of craziness Absolutely. that could be hitting the beach. Absolutely. And that's where I think we need to be constantly vigilant and, and leave, a, as I say, hypothetically, we have to allow yeah. that revisions or supplements could be made or added to our confessions. I don't like the idea of doing that. As I say, it's not, it's not an unproblematic thing to do for a number of reasons. But as you say, when all of the classical categories, which are in many ways assumed by the confessional documents, are now being dismantled and thrown away, it, it does raise a new level of urgency in terms of looking at our confessional documents and thinking about them relative to that. Carl, you know, um, I, I think one of the great uh, points of value in this this new book, which is basically a continuation of your argument, the creedal imperative. But there, there is a different uh, ideological context in which you've written this new edition, or this new book. And at least a part of this is that the entire first-person pronoun issue has become so convoluted. So, you know, who is the I who says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Or the we, who are, who are the we who confess this faith together? How have all these contaminants really messed up the picture? Yeah, well, they, I mean, that's a, a huge story. Uh, I mean, essentially, over the last... So I much you write a book on that. I think you did. <laughs> yeah, big book on that. 
I think the rise of what we might call subjectivity over yeah. the last four or five hundred years has had a dramatic effect. And it's it's interesting that you you talk about the first person there. Absolutely. One of the things I don't mention actually in, in the big book on expressive individualism, but I've come across since, you know, uh, Montaigne, the great French essayist, he's the first man really in literature who starts to use the I consistently. It's all about him. Right. And what Montaigne as an elite cultural figure did in the 16th century has really become the the default for us all now that we tend to think that we are the center of the universe and that our feelings are authoritative. And as Philip Reef would, would then argue, therefore, all institutions and all realities need to reconfigure around that. Now, I think as Christians, we, we certainly accept the importance of the I. We regard ourselves as responsible before God for our actions. We have to answer for our sin. We have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ right. for ourselves. We can't let the priest do it for us. Having said that, uh, Christianity really has a view of the I that is constituted self-consciously by externals, ultimately by the external reality of God. And the, the place I point students to continually, because I often get the question, so are our feelings not important? To which my answer is, our feelings are very important. And what we do with them is very important. We need to do with them what the psalmist typically does with them. Take, for example, Psalm 73. Uh, he's very disturbed at what he sees as the unfairness of life and the unfairness of wo the world. He, he almost slipped. He was that distressed. He almost fell away completely. But then he goes to the uh, the sanctuary and everything makes sense to him. And I say, just, what is he doing there? He's going to the objective, revealed presence of God. Yeah. And he is reconfiguring his notion of himself and his notion of the world in light of that. And I think what creeds and confessions do, they're preoccupied with God first and foremost. And they show us a way of thinking about God and ourselves where everything flows, first of all, from whom God, from who God is. And that's where I think creeds and confessions fulfill a useful uh, function in, in what you know, Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. Yes. Is the social imaginary of your church, uh, is the ethos of your church that shapes the way you think, is it preoccupied with the objective, glorious reality of God or with the feelings you happen to have. And I think a church that that makes a confession or a creed a central part of its life naturally tilts towards the former, towards really focusing our minds upon the external realities that ultimately determine who we are and how we are to understand our feelings. You know, Carl, every once in a while, I, I've reached the age uh, where every once in a while you realize, you know, I'm going to be even more careful when I speak about this thing, this issue, this truth. And um, so I made a statement uh, and have made a statement often when teaching about these things that I've never known anyone who was converted by the creed, but I know many people whose faith has been, you know, just, you know, greatly strengthened, built up, deepened, uh, made more courageous. Yeah. Okay. So then I had a dear friend come up to me and say, I want to tell you that my parents took me to a very liberal Presbyterian church. And uh, I got dragged to church because of my parents just, you know, it's the thing you did. It was a very liberal Presbyterian church, no gospel in it. He said, uh, however, the, the Apostles' Creed was recited every Lord's Day in every mm. service. Yeah. And he said, I was converted by the creed. Interesting. Says, As a 15-year-old boy, he said, I started listening to what we were saying. And I realized at the end of every sentence, I really do believe that. At the end yeah, of the next yeah. sentence, I really do believe that. Yeah, I really do believe that. 
I believe it's true because it's real in Scripture to be true. And, and so I'm saying, you know, the Lord actually used this as a means of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ into a 15-year-old boy who was in a liberal church where no one was preaching the gospel. And yeah. that has just chastened me and, and encouraged me in a strange way. Obviously, that's not the main way we believe people become Christian. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it, it is a powerful testimony. It reminds me, 10 yeah. years ago, I, would, I took my son, who was just about to go up to college. Uh, yeah. I was teaching in Cambridge for a week, my alma, my alma mater. So we, I took him over for a week's holiday in Cambridge, and I was teaching, and he was hanging out. And on the Friday evening, I did something I didn't do even as an under, I've never yeah. done this even as an undergraduate. We went to Evensong at King's College yes, Chapel. Yes. And I sat next to a girl wearing a hijab. She was a young young Muslim girl. And I would say, uh, you'll appreciate the hijab. Thankfully, there was no sermon. <laughs> All we had was the Book of Common Prayer sung and recited. And I remember thinking when we're leaving that evening that whatever else has happened this evening, that young woman with the hijab, she heard the gospel because we recited the creed. We used the Book of Common Prayer. She, Whether she believed it or not, I don't know. But she left that church with, and I, I, I almost hesitate to say this, but having heard more scripture read and probably more gospel proclaimed than in many evangelical churches. Oh, now, absolutely. Not us, we need to examine ourselves here, but that's what you've just said about that young 15-year-old yeah. boy is so moving yeah. from that perspective. Yeah, and just to amplify and, and confirm what you were saying, I, I take people regularly to Westminster Abbey for Coral Evensong. Yeah. And I don't tell them anything about it other than the historical context before we go in. Yeah, And then yeah. afterwards, we have some phenomenal conversations among fellow believers. And one of the things I, I say yeah. is, you realize, because I time it every time. And so the, just a matter of weeks ago, we were at Coral Evensong at Westminster Abbey. And, and honestly, the sermon was an atrocity. But forget that for <laughs> a moment. I fully yes. expected it would be. But yes, yes. But we came back, and and as we were talking the next morning, I said, "Do you realize there's 23 minutes of scripture reading? Yeah, 23 yeah. minutes of nothing yeah. but scripture being read. Do you realize yeah, that we amazing. spent another 14 minutes, you know, reciting truths of the Christian faith uh, in in terms of creeds and another, uh, you know, other other uh, of the acts, and you know that that's an astounding." indictment of evangelical Christianity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we sometimes go to churches, churches that I've been associated with, and yeah. you read a few verses of Scripture on a Sunday, right, and that's right. it. You know, the Anglican Church, God bless her, you get through the Psalms. You know, if you go to every service, you're going right. to get through the Psalms. You you have you have a tremendous... You have a gospel reading, and sometimes it's yes. considerable. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, we need to be very careful before we criticize others that we're... You know, doing well in these areas ourselves first, I think. Yeah, like I say, the sermon was a disaster. And that's where you realize, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's it, to use the category with which you began us, uh, you know, there are things necessary but not sufficient. Yeah. Uh, it's not yeah. sufficient to read the scripture and have a horrible sermon. Uh, yeah. We need yeah. churches that read the scripture, spend a lot of time reading the scripture, recite the creeds, uh, confess the faith, uh, confess our sins and uh, preach the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Carl. Absolutely. So by the time this will, you know, hit the uh, the bestseller list, uh, <laughs> you you will have already been, you know, deep into something else. So what's what's the next thing? 
Well, I've just wrapped up my introduction to critical theory, Frankfurt yeah. School stuff. That's with Broadman and Holman. I'm working on the proofs now, and I'm I'm finishing up another manuscript looking at uh, what the loss of the sacred has done in our culture in various ways. So those are the two things that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, well, Carl, I'm so thankful for you. If you didn't exist, we'd have to invent you. So. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Always love chatting to you, Al. It's been, it's been fun. Well, look forward to the next time I get to see you in person. Until then, uh, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thanks very much. Many thanks to my guest, Carl Truman, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find about 200 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Thinking.